This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. Listeners to our last podcast enjoyed a discussion about 19th century Seminole men's clothing and what an enterprise it is to recreate them. Unfortunately, the 1991 spiral-bound book is out of print and hard to obtain. That is, until now. Enter living historian, enthusiast, and researcher, James Flaherty. Jim is a friend of the key individuals behind the Seminole Men's Clothing Book, Rick Obermeyer and Pete Thompson. He has attended and participated in various Seminole War reenactments and events since the 1980s, as have they. Jim is also an artisan who handcrafts period accoutrements, leather items, and clothing. Hence, Jim's new book, Seminole Wars Era Clothing, includes just about all of Rick and Pete's book, but it adds some additional chapters. What else did he include? Jim and his fellow historical enthusiasts have penned entries featuring everything one needs to know about crafting period-appropriate clothing. And this includes Seminole men's and women's clothing, American civilian men and women of the period, and military service members from the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Marine Corps. Jim tells us why he wrote this book and why this book needed to be written. He dedicates it to living historian reenactors, hobbyists, and students of the trade. But any general reader will find it fascinating how he takes one on a journey from written accounts and painted images to obtaining materials and piecing together the clothing items hand-sewn one by one. Jim Flaherty, he's a member of the Loxahatchee Battlefield Preservationists, the Seminole Wars Foundation, which partnered with him on this book, the Dade Battlefield Society, and the Morse Telegraph Club. And Jim joins us for this episode. Without further ado, Jim Flaherty, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate this opportunity to talk about the Seminole War, specifically my experience and the book that's going to be published probably within the next four weeks called Seminole War Clothing, Seminole U.S. Army, Navy, and Civilian. Well, Jim, how long have you been working on this book? I've been working on this for about four years, and I've called in some longtime friends to help me with it. They've given me permission to add these things into the book. It's really a compilation of articles, and I relied heavily on Rick Obermeyer and Pete Thompson. Those two gentlemen I met when I was 15 years old at Camp Sewell. We were all in the Order of the Arrow, and we all had an interest in Indian lore. An interesting thing when we were there, he had a long shirt that he had made, and we were out in the grass in front of the capsule log cabin there, and he proceeded to rip it into pieces. And he ripped it into all the different pieces that make up the long shirt. And we all did our own drawings and took notes, and we went back and we sewed our first long shirt, which, by the way, I still have. I wore that for years at all kinds of different convocations and campfire ceremonies. So the Boy Scouts in the Order there are what, what got me started. What was it like amassing materials for this compilation? I've been collecting articles and photographs ever since I was 15. I knew that there was a lot of stuff out there. I had relied on William Sturdivant's original book in 1956. And then, of course, Pete and Rick's book. I had met Marine Patrick 
Let me put her article in there about seminal clothing, the seminal woman's clothing. Maureen Patrick been to Dade's many, many, many times. If you go to Dade's website, you'll see her article in there. It talks about how to cut the clothing and how to make it, how to sew it, what colors to use, all those different things. I have a few publications that I've gotten for years. One of them is Muzzle Blast, and it caters to the fur trade era. I get it every month, and whenever I saw an article that I thought might be useful, I would cut it out and put it in a notebook. So when I started putting this together, I noticed that there were two or three articles in there about women's clothing in 1830. That's from Carolyn Carson, and Muzzle Blast gave me permission to put that in the book. It starts out by talking about patterns that are drawn in there. There's patterns about other garments that are worn. Then I happen to find a color picture of someone that made that exact dress, a woman named Peebles. And so I put that in there. So that whole section would be a really good resource for someone that wanted to do a woman's impression for the 1830s. And then I had Guide to Civil War Reenactors by Matt Milne. I worked with his grandfather. And we didn't even know that until we started talking. I've been to a lot of different reenactments with him. He's a great guy. He has a nice knowledge. And importantly, you've also put pen to paper for several of the entries in here. Three or four of the articles in there were based on my experiences. A sideline that I have with the hobby is that I make a lot of my own stuff. When we first did Dades, nobody was making those funny-looking 1830 forge caps. So we got a picture from the Smithsonian, and that picture's in the book. And we got together at a guy's house, and we made our own patterns, and we made our own hats. And since then, a lot of people know I make canteens, I make knives, I, I do a lot of leather work. That's what I know. I'm putting my experience out there, and hopefully people can learn from it. And maybe a rarity. You've included U.S. Navy uniform. And I know you'd like me to give a shout out to Jim O'Dell, who was a major source and influence on your interest in the U.S. Navy during the Seminole War period. I couldn't find that much on the U.S. Navy during the Seminole War. I was able to find a few photographs. And with that, I made my own patterns and I put all those patterns in there. That should be really helpful for people that want to do that impression. In the past, I did also Civil War Navy. That was just a small jump from that. And I did an article about the sailor uniform, about how to make your own photographs, sleeves, backs, hats. And so I thought, maybe I'll put all this together and do something with it. And that's that story. In my view, this book really needed to be written. Well, I don't know if it had to be written. Uh, it's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to put all the information that I had and put it together. And I thought maybe other people could benefit from that. You did have a specific audience, however, and you noted them in your dedication. I wrote it for living history and reenactors. Sometimes you have a hard time finding information on this, work information is out there. You may not know about what colors, what patterns, and I go through all that stuff, step by step, all the way through. I have a good resource section of where to get all the different stuff, where to get your cartridge box, where to get your brogans, where to get your fabric. That'll be helpful. All right. Tell us about how you organized it. The book is divided into different sections. One is Seminole Indian clothing. One is Seminole women's clothing. One section is U.S. Navy clothing and also civilian clothing. You can go from one to the other and get information back and forth. 
this information in the Seminole women's section that could be used by a Seminole War male reenactor describing how things are put together and what colors. I've included a huge amount of 19th century Seminole men's clothing by Pete. That's pretty complete. Steve Rink wrote a nice forward to the book. Our listeners know Steve Rink, who's podcasted with us several times. He's the president of the Seminole Wars Foundation. Rosa Godshaw is the vice president. They've been most helpful, especially Rosa. She's helped me put this together. Right now it's at the formatter, and eventually it'll be on Amazon. Jim, you referenced the Order of the Arrow. Last week, Rick Obermeyer did as well. Tell us about this. I was in the Boy Scouts from 11 years old to 18. And during that time, once a year, for the senior boys in each troop can select and nominate a person to be inducted into the Order of the Arrow. So it's an honorary society. It's a service society. Once you get nominated, then you show up at a Camp Sewell or whatever it is. From the time you get there, you're not allowed to talk. And they take you out in the middle of the woods. They let you have a sleeping bag and two matches. They blindfold you and they take you out in the middle of the woods and they, they will come get you in the morning. So you're sitting there in a the sleeping bag and you're wondering, yeah, palmettos, snakes, noises. Finally, maybe you get some sleep and then they come around, wake you up, and then they feed you a sparse meal. What the Order of the Arrow does is it's a service society, like a camp school. We put in buildings, Adirondacks, we put plumbing in, we did conservation. And so you do that all day. And at the end of the day, if you've passed that silent ordeal, then you're taken into the back of the property to a secret ceremonial area and the induction starts into the order. All of the officers of the Order of the Arrow for, for that lodge, my lodge was Timucuan Lodge, they're all dressed in their costumes and they have Chingachgook, Uncas, all those Lenape, Lenape Indians that are famous from John Fenmore Cooper's book. So then you make a pledge and then you're officially in the order. And then after you've been there a year, there's two more ranks, Brotherhood and Vigil. Those are service things. I mean, you don't have to be silent. You don't have to sleep in the middle of the woods. And one of the things that the order is famous for, where I got my background, is that we very definitely work on pageants for American Indians. And every year, you put together a dance with the songs or chants that go with it, and you go to one of the different areas of the state, Jacksonville, Fort Myers, Orlando, wherever the lodge is that's hosting it, and then you put on your pageant, they choose who the winner is. We did some around dance one year. We did a Clinket Northwest Indians dance. We did a ghost dance. We did an Aztec dance. In preparation for this pageant, we make our own costumes. And there was a woman volunteer that taught us different chants that would go with it. And then we build the backgrounds, the sets, the panels, and we present that at the 6E conference that's held every year. And the winner from that gets to go to the nationals where you have these different lodges from all over the country that compete. I went to one of those at the University of Indiana, and it was really, really interesting. It was their 50th anniversary. I believe they just had their 100th anniversary. That got me started in Indian lore. And then in the Boy Scouts, I got Indian lore merit badge, and I met with a counselor. And this is all before the Internet. 
So you go to the library, you go through the Dewey Decimal System and, and the card catalogs, and, you know, you do your research. And uh, the counselor for Indian lore was an old man, actually lived down the street from me, and I met with him. And he had done a lot of research, especially on Tampa Bay area. That's where I grew up. The Indians in that area were the Tocobago Indians. I went to visit Indian Mounds. It's a great one at Celope Park there that you can go and see. And you learn about the indigenous Indians and how they lived, what tools they used. That was a big help. Your book helps reenactors get it right. Why is that so important? Well, it's important to get it right. I've been to, I don't know how many. When I first started doing reenacting in the Seminole Wars, when I went to Dades, the first year I went as an American mountain man because I was in the fur trade area at that time. And then for the next three years, I did Seminole Indian. Using this type of information from what I knew and what I'd learned and, and from different sources, I made my own long shirt. And then even years later, when I went to one reenactment with one group, the authenticity, it wasn't there. I mean, you looked out in the woods and there was a woman that was playing a thumbnail woman and she had lime green and pink and totally wrong. And it stood out. It gives the wrong impression. Having a source like my book can maybe help correct some of those things. Or maybe it could save you a lot of time by making it right the first time. As an example, I did Civil War reenacting for over 12 years with my sons. There's certain rifles that you have to have. They have to be long, like 42-inch barrel, because you're shooting over the shoulder of the guy in front of you. And a lot of newbies that get into it, they end up buying the 58 caliber Mississippi rifle because it's cheap. And the reason it's cheap is because the barrel's too short and you can't use it in Civil War reenacting. I knew two different people that went out and bought that gun and they show up at an event it says you can't use that. So the more you know ahead of time can actually save you some time and have you do it the right way. When I started doing Civil War, I didn't have a gun because that's a big expense. And our club had one. That if you were a new member, they would loan it to you. But then you had to buy your own within six months. So everybody has to start somewhere. Styles of clothing continue to change, evolve, adapt, morph. How do you keep track of that to ensure an accurate presentation? Well, it depends on the time period. For example, the headgear. The headgear of the U.S. Army was like fashion today. Whatever they were wearing in Milan or in Europe, then we tended to copy the headgear. And that's where we came out with that crazy-looking forage cap. Almost all the services at this time made the uniforms out of wool. They made them out of wool because it was cheaper. It could wick moisture away from the body, just like a microfiber today. It was readily available. Cotton was too expensive, even after the cotton gin. So it was only used in the summertime. The interesting thing is the wool is what they call a kersey weave, which is like a twill. Jarnigan and some of these other people that make the clothing, they get the wool from Europe and sometimes from the same factory that made that particular material back in the 1830s. Everything had to be sewn by hand. Sewing machine didn't come around until 1844, basically. Jim, your book is comprehensive but it doesn't have everything. What did you choose not to include in the book and why? I had a whole section on dyes and aniline dyes, all the different things. The book was getting too big, so I didn't include that. The various U.S. military services use this material. They just use it in different ways, different cuts, different dyes. That's right. For example, in the Marine Corps, 
they wore the same 1830 forge cap as the Army. The uniforms would be pretty much the same. They would put different stripes on the uniform. For example, in the Army, white would be infantry. Dragoons would be orange. And cavalry would be red. Some of those same colors are still used today. And the Marine Corps would probably be red. I'm not sure. I didn't get into much to that. And then obviously the weapons varied. One side hobby I have is that I buy old antique 1816 muskets, which were used in this area. And 98% of them were converted to percussion. I take them and replace the forearm that's usually cut off take the percussion parts off, and I put the flint back on. I've done about six of those, and a couple of them are in museums. So I do that. I make backpacks. I think I mentioned that earlier, canteens, etc. Images of some of these made it into your book? What I have in there is I have a photograph of a hard pack that was used in the first Seminole War and part of the second Seminole War, a hard backpack. I have pictures of it that I made in my shop, and then I have pictures of canteen. I have pictures of weapons that I have um, reconverted, as they call it, and some other things. It's a lot of the work that I've done is in that chapter. How would you categorize your project? It's been a journey. I started out in the Order of the Arrow, doing some old stuff. Then when I grew up, <laughs> I never grew out of my love for history. I did fur trade era, which is American mountain man. I made buckskin leggings and I made my own shirt. I made my own moccasins. And when I did date the first year, that's what I wore because that's what I had. I graduated into Seminole, which I already had experience in, in making a long shirt. So I made a long shirt for that. I wove some garters. I wove a belt and I made my own moccasins and my own leggings. That's where those experiences come from. And then I graduated as I obtained more money, <laughs> to be honest with you. I started doing infantry. Like I said, we made our own hat. The muskets I converted to be used. That's that period. And then about two years ago, our group decided that we were going to do a sailor impression. So I made my own, what they call midi, hat and the different accoutrements. And accoutrements are, as everybody, your audience probably knows, are just things that are added to the uniform. They're not cloth. It could be, it could be a pouch, it could be a backpack, it could be a haversack, all those different things that you hang around your neck. Jim, I've got to be honest with you. I don't have any craftsman talent. Where can I find some of these items to just purchase? I have a very good section in the book that tells about where you can get different things. For example, you can, personally, I think the people that make the most accurate uniforms is C.J. Jarnigan and company. They're in Corinth, Mississippi, and I actually visited their factory a long time ago. And they make everything the right way. Most everything they make, they have an original in their back room, and that's what they do have uh, sources about the footwear, the brogans. There's different places that you can buy those. Those are listed. If you can't afford them, you can go and get on Amazon and look for chucka boots. Those will do to get you started. They're black. You want to get it with the rough side out. So that's where you get that. And for the Navy, I have some places that you can go to, to do that. I found a guy, believe it or not, in Dubai that makes 100% cotton jumpers for their Navy. You can buy that in large sizes, which you're going to need. So I bought one from him. I cut the collar off, and then I made the new collar, 
which is a navy collar with striping on it. And the hat, I had some examples from the internet about the tar hats, and I explained how to make one of those and put that together and all the different weapons to go with it. Talking to fellow reenactors, and then there's really two good pictures. One is in Osprey about military history, about the Alamo, which, by the way, the primary arm there was the 1816 musket. And then there's a photograph in there of a sailor with the uniform, with the blue cuffs. And then I found a couple other photographs. I also have a book on U.S. Army and Navy uniforms. It's not really detailed. There's not a lot in there. I put together a pretty good section. And even if they can't buy that midi in some way, they can make a lot of times I'll go to Goodwill and I'll buy a big shirt and cut it up and make my own pattern. People can do that. It's a good way to get started. And that's the positive aspect that people are exposed to history. Jim, you do have something of a conundrum. You want people exposed to the history, but you want them to be exposed to the accurate history as much as we can determine. This may collide during the Seminole War period with the different uniforms that the Army wore, but at different periods, and one does not want to be anachronistic with it. I'll give you an example. We do dates every year, and this is my own opinion. The correct hat for that is the 1830 forge cap. A lot of people go out there, and, and with the 42 model, it looks like a captain's hat with a visor, which really didn't even occur until after the war. But sometimes people end up wearing that. And then there's another hat that came out in 1828, and some people use that. But think about it. A wool cap is going to survive from, from 1828 until 1835, maybe. Maybe if they're with the militia. So then what happens is, and this happens in the Civil War too, people go to an event and they see something that you and I might know is wrong, and they say, that's the way it is. There was one instance where somebody did a nice landscape of a certain battle. A lot of times they have the wrong musket or the wrong hat or the wrong jacket. Where did they learn that? They probably learned it by watching a reenactment. So I think it's important to be as correct as you can. Probably when people hear what I just said, they're not going to be real happy with it. But it's unbelievable what some people were. I mean, they're there, aren't they? And one advantage to a lot of the reenactments is they can go as, as militia or irregulars. And then maybe it's not so important. Look at dates. I mean, there's 102 soldiers. And if you are 100% correct, and we know this because we have competition amongst each other who's wearing the most correct uniform, those with muskets might be 50. And those with percussion, which certainly isn't right, when the battle starts off, we know that at dates, half of the soldiers were shot down on the first volley. And guess who falls down? Those with the incorrect guns. Those with the correct weapon and accoutrements get to fight the rest of the battle. Of course, we all die at the end anyway. So, Jim, you include an addenda, which consists of a portrait gallery of Creek and Seminole Indian. What's the significance of Why did you include it? In the 1830s, a lot of the Indian chiefs that we know of made a trip to Washington, and they would give them their peace medal. Then they would go over, and McKinney and Hall would do color portraits. So I think they were done in uh, in watercolor. And he did a lot of Now I've got a book that's huge. And my takeaway from there is you can get a good idea what colors did they wear. What type of calico did they wear? We know they wore a lot of cotton calico, and we know that the little images in the calico were little flowers. They were small. You can look and you can see the ruffles. You can see the hairstyle, sometimes the turbans. 
that's a real good resource. Jim, my tongue is firmly in cheek. Why aren't you detailing how to make seminal patchwork? Well, there wasn't any patchwork. Patchwork didn't come into 1890 when the sewing machine was introduced. There was absolutely no patchwork in the Seminole War, and there wasn't even any applique. But I understand it. I understand that. How do you answer the charge that the Seminoles fought either naked or with just a breechcloth? And yet, reenactors portraying Seminole are fully clothed. They say that when the Indians fought, they fought naked or with just a breechcloth. Well, we can't do that. Finery that they were and all that stuff. Maybe it wasn't worn in battle. It was certainly worn before and after the battle and for ceremonies. And it definitely was worn when they made their trip to Washington to get their peace medal. Jim, you close with a short piece, Living History, Reenacting Impressions and Events. Please share with us your thoughts for penning that piece. Mm, That's a biography of what I've done from the Boy Scouts through today. Different reenactments that I've been to, Dade Battlefield, Boy Scouts, Fur Trade Era. And at the bottom, I have some movies that I've been in. And I know some reenactors have been in those movies, too. I know Gettysburg, Chickamauga, Glory, Gods and Generals. And I also did Spanish-American War Impression. NFL Films came out with a movie on that that was pretty interesting. But a lot of times these directors and these people, they like varying actors because they can hire people that already are dressed out correctly, that they have the right weapons. And believe it or not, the officers can march us from one battle scene to the next. It all kind of works together, doesn't it? Have you ever heard of Family Guns? I'm pretty friendly with a guy named Kramer that has a company called IMA, International Military Weapons. He's bought hundreds of thousands of weapons from all over the world. I have a brown vest I bought from them. I have an Enfield that I bought from them. So we got to be pretty good friends back and forth. And he said, I want to come down there and be in your event. So he came down. Norman, a friend of mine, we showed up at dates and uh, we put him in a uniform, musket, all that kind of stuff. And he participated in the battle. He was a little hard to handle him, but because he wanted to do things, he said, no, you can't do that. It didn't happen. You can't have hand-to-hand. It didn't happen. So they came out with it, and uh, it was National Geographic. And I think it aired one or two times, and then one of these mass shootings took place. So they took it off the air. And it had a lot of good articles in there about machine guns and early weapons. As a matter of fact, Alex, who's the son of the owner, appears as an expert on pawn shop all the time. As you're looking at this as a comprehensive whole, it's clear there's a common thread that's sewn into the fabric of the information you've put together. Sure. For myself, I think it's a common thread because it's my journey. I have an intense interest in living history and portraying it correctly. It shows from when I started, and maybe you can see how I graduated from one area to the other, all living history and trying to portray it correctly, maybe wearing some of the accoutrements and the uniforms that I've made myself. As Dale Carnegie said, it gives me the right to speak. The biggest change is how they've grown so quickly. The dates, one year, we did 100%. We had 102 soldiers and 250 Indians, I think. We were real excited about that because we did the reenactment with the number of people that were there. The other big change is when we first started, and we need to think about this because I don't want to get anybody angry. But when we first started, I was a Seminole Indian, and so was everybody else. And there was not one Seminole Indian being portrayed that was actually a Seminole Indian. We couldn't get them to come. It's not something they wanted to do. 
And then when a younger generation came along, started coming to their enactments, like Pedro. Yes, Pedro Zapata and his brother Brian, both of whom, I might add, have been guests for the Seminole Wars Authority podcast. And, and we've got an open invitation, Daniel Tommy, to join us as our guest. That was super, super. And they took it a step farther with their authenticity and their craft work. It was really a good thing. Those are the biggest changes that have come along. Why is it important to present the history as accurately or as authentically as feasible in such a spectacle as these are? I'm going to give you a story. There's one of our reenactors name. His name is Steve Abbott, and he was 100% authentic. As a matter of fact, he was totally into the Battle of New Orleans and the, the War of 1812. He would come to our event, and we would drill, drill, drill. Company in the line, wheeling, different facings, and he would make sure that we had it, and we had it right. And then right before the battle, and this really moved me, he said, gentlemen, you're not wearing a costume. You're not wearing just a uniform. You're wearing the uniform of the United States Army. And you need to be proud. And you need to represent those people that died here on both sides. And I always think about that. I'm not doing a show. I'm doing a tribute in my mind. On that profound note, we close our podcast. Jim Flaherty, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Appreciate it. Have a good day. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.